Amen, amen, amen. What a great start to the year. Uh, just backstage listening to the congregation worship. And uh, I'm going to bring out a phrase from my southern family, my southern roots. Uh, we got some folks that can sing. Not sing. Like everybody can sing. I can sing, barely. I've been asked not to. But I, I can sing. We got some people that can sing. Like two A's in there. I hope you enjoyed worship as much as I have. Um, let's go ahead and get the joke out of the way. Uh, you know there's an incoming, it's a pastor on stage, it's January 1st. You know there's going to be some kind of dad slash pastor joke. So let's get this out of the way right at the top. Um, I guarantee this will be the best sermon you have heard this year. There we go. We've got it out of the way. It's my legal obligation as a pastor uh, to start that way with a terrible joke to welcome you to the new year. Um, I do want to applaud. <laughs> thank, thank you for the mercy applause. That makes me feel so much better. Um, I do want to say uh, props to you guys for starting the year off right. Uh, I can't think of a better way. People ask, like, hey, what do you think about uh, Sunday being new, like New Year's Day, falling on Sunday? I'm like, I can't think of a better way to start the year. Uh, almost all of my priorities and goals and resolutions for the year have uh, some kind of foundation in growing my relationship with God. And so for New Year's Day to fall on a Sunday it just reinforces that. And so I'm excited about that. I love the new year. Um, a lot of people are big New Year's people. Um, let's play a game. Uh, I encourage you, uh, be loud, shout it out. I know we stayed up late last night, so we'll get some blood flowing a little bit here. Um, new Year's resolutions. Let's talk New Year's resolutions real quick. Uh, according to some website, who I can't remember the name, um, it's there. Um, for about the past like 10 or 12 years, it's really been like the same five top New Year's resolutions. They, they semi-rotate in order. There's a little change of pace. But for the most part, it's the same five New Year's resolutions uh, that, that take the top five among the people polled. So let's see if we could guess. What do you guys think is the number one? New Year's resolution. Just shout it out. What do you got? Yeah. I, I, heard, I heard a lot of right answers, and I heard a lot of answers that will be later on the list. Uh, number one is exercise more, right? Exercise more crowd. There you go. Good job. You're number one. Uh, number two. What do we think number two is? Lose weights out there. What do we got? Keep you on. What do we got? I heard it. Uh, more street, Marcus, that is our resolution, and I will hold you accountable, brother. Uh, actually, it's quite the opposite. Uh, number two is eat healthier. Uh, number three, what else we got? That's a good one. We got to save money in there. Actually, number three is kind of this, how you do the first two. Uh, number three is lose weight. Uh, number four is save money. And uh, number five, what do you think number five is? Go to, ooh, more time with family. We got it. You read my notes. Good job. More time with family and friends. And, uh, and then coming up over the past 10 years, there's been a few uh, that have started to kind of creep up the list a little bit. Um, one is start a side hustle. Uh, that's started to creep up on people's lists. Uh, another one that has started to creep up on people's list is uh, less time on social media, right? A relatively new one. Uh, we're kind of seeing that kind of curve back around. And then 
Always in there is some kind of form of grow a relationship with God or put God first or, or just even learn about God, start learning about God. And, and so I want to say to you, if that's your resolution, if you're here for the first time and your resolution is, hey, I want to learn about God, God bless you. God bless you. Uh, God says, seek and ye shall find. We hope that we can be a help of that here at New Vintage Church in this upcoming year. And that all of us will grow in that discipline, right, that daily exercise of what it means uh, to put God first. That's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16. Uh, it's my favorite parable. Uh, doesn't get a ton of attention, uh, in my opinion. Um, it's a parable of rich man and Lazarus. And there's a lot to glean from this parable. But today we're going to look at it from an exercise of what can we pull from this parable when it comes to putting God first. And I'll be honest with you. Um, I hesitate using terms like putting God first. I grew up in the church, and I know that's a churchy term. And sometimes what happens when we have a churchy term like that, it kind of starts to not necessarily lose its meaning, but we kind of forget what that actually means, or we take it for We hear it so often, oh yeah, I'm gonna put God first. That sounds great. What does that actually mean? And what does that actually look like in our day-to-day -day practice, in our day-to-day -day walk? And, and so that's what, that's what I want to uh, walk out of here with today. Is let's look at this story and let's see what can we learn about putting God first when it comes to our plans and our resolutions and our goals. What can we learn from this parable so that we can have a deeper, better relationship with God and so that we can put him first? Uh, let, let's get right to the scripture. Let's, uh, let's, let's pray over this scripture in the reading of uh, God's word. God, uh, this is a powerful uh, parable that Jesus gave. I pray that today uh, we would have ears to hear. Uh, God, that we would um, allow the scripture to resonate. And, and God, that you would teach beyond anything that I could say. Uh, Lord, whatever needs to be heard from this passage today, uh, that you would allow it to be heard. In your son's holy name, amen. <clears throat> All right, Luke uh, chapter 16, verses 19. Uh, we'll, we'll do 19 through 21 first. And what I'll do is we're going to read a chunk of the story, and then we'll go back and kind of talk about what we just saw here. Uh, Luke 16, 19 through 21. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Beautiful sight, right, to start. <laughs> um, there, there's a lot of stuff in here. It's, a, it's kind of a straightforward story, but there's some details I, wanna, I want us to pick up on here. Uh, first of all, there's a rich man who is dressed in purple and fine linen. Uh, purple uh, is the hardest color to dye. It's one of the rarest colors. So when Jesus is talking to the people of his time, purple was 
in a lot of countries associated with royalty, right? So this isn't Jesus saying, hey, this is a guy who's doing pretty well off. When he's speaking to the people, the, the crowd that Jesus is speaking to instantly goes, this guy is at the top of the top, right? If he's wearing purple and fine linen every day, he is at the top of the top. So there's no doubt in the listener's mind that this person was extremely well off. Not just doing okay, but extremely well off. Very blessed. Lived in luxury every day. At his gate, uh, part of the architectural culture, really still to this day, in a lot of places around uh, the Mediterranean and the Middle East, uh, if you have any kind of money, your house typically has, you have your house with a little courtyard and a gate, and then an outer courtyard and an outer gate. Uh, a lot of that is for safety. You have one way in, one way out. If people get in, they're trapped. Um, a lot of that is for prestige, right? So you see the big house, you see the, the grand gate. So this is a pretty common architecture. Uh, still to this day, we still see this a little bit. So the idea that somebody has a gate, immediately, if you're a listener in this crowd, you're probably thinking of somebody in your town that has the big gate. And what would happen is beggars or folks that were sick, who didn't, and this is the time, no hospitals or anything, if you were sick, you were reliant upon the mercy of others. If a beggar didn't, if somebody didn't have a family, what they would often do is they would often sit at the gate, right outside the gate of rich people, and wait for them to toss out their food and eat their scraps. And that's how you would get by if you were a beggar. So immediately, we have top and bottom of the social hierarchy here. And to reinforce this point, when, when people say, why do they mention the dogs here? Well, Back in the day, dogs were not like, like cute pets. Like if you put a sweater on a dog back then, um, people would look at you weird. I'm going to still look at you weird, but back then they really, really would. But the dogs were just scavengers. They were mutts. They weren't pets. And so the idea here is one of a couple things, or maybe a combination of both. The dogs were competition for Lazarus for food. The dogs were more than likely competition for Lazarus for food. And even they are showing mercy by licking his wounds. So we reinforce how low Lazarus is, right? That dogs are the only beings having mercy on him. And it also reinforces how little mercy the rich man had. Luke 16, 22 through 24. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw 
Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water just to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Let's break this down a little bit. Uh, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Uh, in, uh, Abraham, if you don't know, is a spiritual forefather of the Israelites. He's one of our spiritual forefathers, our spiritual descendants. A powerful, powerful name. And in this parable, Abraham takes the place of God for this parable. So I say this so that if you hear me interchange Abraham and God, what I'm, I'm not saying Abraham is God. What I'm saying is, for the sake of this parable, Abraham represents God. That's how the listeners of the story originally would have heard this. In Hades, where the rich man is in torment, um, this is one of the places where, this is one of the parables where we do um, see a vision of what that looks like in the afterlife. The rich man looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Um, if you want bonus points or a really cool study, we don't have time to go on this today, but look up who else is named Lazarus in the New Testament. And there's some cool commonalities there. Um, there's, some cool, there's some cool similarities. There's, there's a cool little thread there to follow if you feel like pulling on that thread. And Lazarus is sitting by the side of Abraham. And the rich man can see him. He's far off, but he, the rich man can see him. And so this is what he does. He calls to God, and he says, Have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in pain. So let's break this down here real quick. He's telling God from Hades, this man is telling God what to do. From Hades, this man is telling God what to do. And what's his view of Lazarus still? Lazarus has now been promoted to servant. This man is so used to being in charge and so used to having things his way that he has the audacity, fill in the blank with whatever word resonates with you here, but the audacity, right, to think that he is in any kind of place to tell God what to do. And he still thinks he's in charge. And we know he thinks he's still in charge because he asked Lazarus to go run the errand for him. About 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, uh, Barna Group did some research 
on what Christians in America actually believe. And one of the troubling beliefs that came up was a term called moralistic therapeutic deism. And it's this idea that God is like this cosmic butler far away until we call on him to serve us or meet our needs. And I remember reading that and going, well, that's nothing new. We've been doing that for thousands of years. We treat God like some kind of cosmic butler. God, here's my checklist of stuff I need. I'm a little uncomfortable right now. Will you send your servant to come help me out? I'm sorry, what? I say this. This sermon's for me. If you guys want to listen in, that's fine. This guy here is treating God like he's in, like, like the rich man is treating God like the rich man is still in charge. He's treating God like a cosmic butler, and he's assuming that his standing on earth has any kind of pull in eternity. Luke 16, 25 through 26. But Abraham replied, Son. Y'all have heard that before, right? You know that voice from your dad? Son. Son. Remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. God is saying, that's how this works. This is my upside-down kingdom. And besides that, Scripture says, verse 26, besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. God is saying, look, this is how this works. Things are not the way that you're used to anymore. This is how this works. First of all, Lazarus has re Lazarus received agony. It's his turn to receive the comfort now. And second, there's a chasm here. We're separated. You can see, and, and maybe that's part of the torment in the parable here, is you can see, but there is no crossing. Let's break this down a little bit. I alluded to this a little bit. Um... Abraham replies, son, meaning there's still a relationship there. But uh, I read this, and I hear my dad's voice when I messed up. And it's a mix of, I love you, but I am about to launch you into orbit, <laughs> right? I don't know if you ever heard that voice from your parents before. I hear, I hear it now. I know I got a six and four-year-old, and there are definitely times 
when my boys say something and I go, son, you are about to be doing laps around Jupiter. Mm. And then I call our babysitters and pan them off on them. <laughs> Just kidding. Actually, sort of kidding. <laughs> no, Abraham replies, you had your time to be comfortable. It's done. It's over. This is, this is not how things work here. And he goes on to explain, just in case you didn't notice the giant chasm, this is how that chasm works. And, and so when I think about us, I think about how often we think the rules don't apply to us. Obviously, there's a great chasm here. God, I'm going to ask for your help to just never mind that. Hey, God, I'm a little uncomfortable here. I'm going to need you to do something to fix this. Luke 16, 27 through 28. The rich man answers, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And you can kind of there's a way, looking at this on the surface, that you can kind of say, okay, he's not asking for himself. There's, there's a little bit of altruism here. The rich, rule, the rich man has stopped asking for himself. Now he's trying to save his family. He's trying to do something good for others. The problem is, he's still trying to be in charge. He's still telling God what to do. And if you're not sure about whether or not he's learned his lesson, who does he ask God to send? He still has the low view of Lazarus, which is a pretty good indicator. The message hasn't come through yet. There's a time in the Old Testament where um, God had told his people to transfer the Ark of the Covenant. But he said, don't touch the Ark of the Covenant. They had a special setup for it. And there's a time where it's slipping and it's falling, and a guy goes to reach down, Right? To keep it from falling because that sounds like a good idea, but that's not what God said. And so he dies. One of my favorite people in the Bible, Peter, sees his rabbi, his friend, Jesus, being arrested in the garden. And he does something when you first read it, you kind of go, yeah, dude, go for it. He pulls a sword. says, we're not going down without a fight. 
And Jesus says, no, that's not how this works. Even if it's something good, even if we're calling on God to do something good, if it doesn't work according to his will, it's not going to happen. I know there's a lot of us that have good intentions out there when we call upon God. But if we're calling upon God for our own benefit or if we're calling upon God in a way of I'm in charge and I need you to do this for me, I don't think we should be upset when the answer is no. Going back to scripture, he had asked God to send Lazarus to talk to his brothers. Abraham replies in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to him. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So let's break this down a little bit. Verse, verse 29 here, Abraham's response. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. It was the same prophets that the rich man had to listen to. It's the same people that we have to listen to. And here, here's, this is the part of the story that is just rough. All right. So God's reply here is go listen to, go listen to the prophets. And what is the rich man's Response. What's the first word out of his mouth? Mmm. 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 Dude. Oh my good. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. God has spoken to you, and your first words out of your mouth are no. Mm. Like, what do you even do with that, right? <laughs> I remember telling my dad no. <laughs> and what followed is no longer allowed. <laughs> I think about how many times I have to tell my boys, just listen. And to hear no, and you're just like, Hulk has nothing on that transformation. <laughs> exactly. It's just like, I identify with the Incredible Hulk right there. Just like, this is why people tore their clothes in the Old Testament. Like, it is just, how are you going to say no to God? God tells you what to do, and you say no. What? 
I'm, I'm worked up about this. Like, the, I read this story a lot, and every time I read this story, I know this part is coming. And it's like, it's just painful. Like, you know when you're watching those movies, and you know the uncomfortable scene is coming, and you're just like, hey, anybody want popcorn or whatever? Like, I'm going to peace out for, like, the next Like, this is that part of the story. I know it's coming. And every time I see that word no there, it just, ah. He said no to God. He is in Hades, and he's saying no to God. My guess is that's probably not the first time. And the rich man replies, I've got a better plan. And God says, look, if they're not going to listen to the prophets, they're not going to listen to that poor guy that was out in front of the gates the whole time. It's not how this works. So, what does this have to do with us and putting God first in our plans? First, we need to know how things work. They're not our plans to give. God is not our butler to command. If we want our plans, our goals, our resolutions to come to fruition, the best idea is for them not to be our plans that we're inviting God into, but plans based on and aligned with God's already spoken will. Even if they're altruistic. If you want to put some horsepower behind your goals and your plans, make sure they're lined up with God. So otherwise, you're on your own. And there's a reason those top five are the top five every year. Align our plans with his, not vice versa. And also, part of knowing how things work, all of this is knowing how this works. We align our plans with God's not vice versa. We recognize we only have so much time, right? Our time is limited on this. And our status means nothing. Our earthly status means squat. If our plans are aligned with his, though, if we're calling on God and saying, God, I'm going to align myself with you, now it's not about us and our strength and who we are. It's about who God is. Psalm 1921 says, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. I'll say that again. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Second part. What does this have to do with putting God first? What's the practical part? Second, listen to the prophets. Listen to 
the prophets. Something my youth pastor used to say, God speaks to us whenever we will listen. God speaks to us whenever we will listen. And the truth is, sometimes we forget that this is God speaking to us. Sometimes we forget that God speaks through wise counsel, which is why it matters who is around you. Sometimes we forget that God speaks through prayer because our prayer is us speaking to God over and over and over again. Real cool challenge, spend half your time in prayer and silence. Just listen. Great challenge, spend all your time in prayer and silence. Listen to what God says. Listen to the prophets. God speaks to us whenever we listen. Jeremiah 29 Verse 12 and 13, one of the prophets that Jesus is talking about here. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And lastly, sometimes our our plans are our goals. They don't work because they're, they're like crazy big. It's like, I'm going to go hit up all seven continents this year. Doable, but a pretty grand task. How about we start with like travel to the country next door, right? Sometimes we get these big ideas and, and, and we want to, we're not sure where to look, where to start. How about this? We read through this parable. Why don't we start out front of our own gate? God had put the rich man's redemption in front of his house every day for years. God had put that goal, that resolution, that plan right in front of his doorstep every day. For years. He knew him by name. So my encouragement to you, if you're saying, how do I start? Where do I start with putting God first in my life? What's the first thing that I need to address? My encouragement to you is to look in front of your own gate. What's been staring at you for years? Maybe it's a habit that you need to kick. Maybe it's a person you need to reconcile with. Maybe it's somebody you need to seek peace with. Who knows? I don't know where all of you live, so I can't tell you what's in front of all your gates. Look in front of your own gate. My guess is God has a big, bold plan right at your doorstep. It may be a little uncomfortable, but if you align your goals with his, if you listen to his prophets and his people, 
speak, listen to him, speak to your heart, speak through his word, and just look right in front of you. That's a way that we can put God first in this new year. We're going to do a time of communion now. I love this time of communion. Uh, We do this every week. And one of the reasons we do this every week is because we consider Sunday the start of the week. We consider Sunday the start of the week. And communion is a time for us to focus specifically on the gift of Christ. And so let's put God first. What a great way to put God first is by just taking a time, taking a minute to break bread together that represents his body, to drink the juice together that represents his blood. Let's take this time and commune together. God, we're thankful for your son. We're thankful for his sacrifice. We're thankful for what he means to us, God. And I pray that we would set our plans aside. Lord, that we, <laughs> we would resist the urge to tell you and your son how to act in our lives, God, and that we would, we would listen to you and your prophets for our plans, for our, our goals and our resolutions, God. And God, that we would see what you have for us right in front of our front gate. Your son's holy name we pray. Amen.